I'm Paul Hawken. I'm a writer. Um, I've been writing about the environment and since, uh, I can't remember when, really, 1973. It was uh, quite a while, 40 years maybe. And, um, uh, but also writing about the environment and business because um, I have been in business all my life. Uh, my first business was uh, sustainable agriculture and natural foods. And <clears throat> and I went into that business for the same reason you eat the food, which is to try to change both myself and where and how food uh, is grown, um, and learned a lot. So for me, business has always been a way to make something happen in the world that isn't happening that should happen, as opposed to you know how do you sell and make money. It's not been so interesting to me. So in the process of doing that, I've written a lot about it and ecology, commerce, and the next economy and growing a business were all natural capitalism, which, by the way, is not about capitalism. It's about natural capital. It has nothing to do with capitalism. But, um, but purposely titled it all to ensnare people. <laughs> well, my leftist friend, but no such thing as natural capitalism. I'm going to make that clear the way people understand it. But there is in the Schumacher, he didn't coin the term, but he used the term more uh, publicly, the, nat the term natural capital, to refer to all those things out there and, and you know, resources and <clears throat> resource flows and ecosystem services that aren't in anybody's balance sheet. Mm. And, the, and not that we should monetize them, but they, they should be recognized as being extraordinarily valuable. And so natural capitalism is really about what happens when the um, limiting factor to human well-being is not human capital, you know, roads and highways and hospitals, but actually natural capital. And so I wrote four books on business. And so, I mean, like you said, when you say that with natural capitalism not being about capitalism as such, but is it possible to have a form of natural capitalism or any form of capitalism that isn't, doesn't depend on economic growth? Do you think that growth is, is, is conducive to... Of the world we need to create. Yeah, there's, there's, we, we have to sort of, um, <clears throat> sort of parse that. Uh, it's a great question. The what I mean by that is, it's always going to be growth, but better with this overall growth, the metastatic growth. Whether that's the kind of growth, you know, is well, that can't happen. I mean, that's not possible. And also, we have to under, we have to define growth because if it's growth in stuff. Or is it growth, growth in service? Is it growth in quality? Or is it growth in money? And so it's the growth itself isn't the problem. It's what's growing and then how prosperity is measured. Um, and right now, as you well know, the, the, the metrics we have for, for economic growth um, are just bollocks. You know? I mean, they're just, they don't mean anything at all. I mean, they have nothing to do with people's experience or life quality. Um, they may have at one time. I'm not saying they didn't, but they don't now. And um, <clears throat> so it's possible, but just like an adult, you know, when they when you reach adulthood, you don't grow in size, hopefully too much, but you, you continue to grow. And so it's an easily imaginable economy that grows in complexity and uh, in, in complexity in the elegant sense, you know, like people becoming better and more refined at things and teaching and learning and uh, <clears throat> uh, and, and, and innovating and inventing you know but I think it's very possible not only to grow but but it's possible to grow and absolutely have a, a ninefold reduction in energy and material uh, or 
or tenfold, I mean, to reduce what we use by 10%, and to have grown in the sense of prosperity and an income that is more than a living wage and that provides people with their needs and, and extra, you know, to provide for those things that they want to be discretionary about in their life. Um, that's very possible. And again, you know, we have to look at economy. Uh, right now we're stealing the future uh, and we're selling it uh, in the present. We're calling it GDP. And there is no reason whatsoever we couldn't heal the future and monetize that in the present and work at it. Because when you do that, you're creating value for the future generations. And that has present value. So the way we do it is just like, is a choice by default, by lack of imagination, by, and there's no reason we can't have intergenerational financing where we're, we're, we're in a sense being, we're financing the future by spending the present, by lending to each other to create value that is paid back by restoring natural capital and our land, our forests and our waterways and all those things have so much value. And um, those choices are there for us. That's still a growing economy, but not growing in impact, not growing in stuff. In fact, there's a radical reduction in both. And you wrote Blessed Unrest a few years ago, which was your kind of mapping of the, 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 the movement to, to change the world in its kind of widest sense. Um, what's, what's changed uh, since then? Is your sense that that movement is stronger than it was when you wrote the book, or that it's less strong, or what, what's, what's your kind of update? Yeah, that's a good question too. I mean, um, I do get asked that, especially when Occupy showed up, and then people were all, you know you predicted Occupy or Arab Spring, and I didn't predict anything, so let's be clear. Um, and nor was I trying to, but I was trying to do, starting in 99, at the WTO demonstrations in Seattle, which is where the book arose, I just sort of kept noticing the diversity and how those people came there and the way it was organized. And it, it was different than than uh, protests that I had seen, you know, growing up in civil rights, anti-war, and environmental um, and I thought, well, this is something's going on here, you know. And I, so I started to I pull that string on that flower bag, and uh, and it just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And then I asked this simple question: "Is like, well, I wonder how many groups are there? You know, it's like must be somebody. Somebody knows, you know. It's like must be a registry, or, you know. And um, we're so good in lists in, in so many things, and there was just nothing anywhere. And I grew up in at a university, and Marion, the librarian, was a hero in our family, and so I thought, well, I'll go to the library. <laughs> they know, you know, they had no idea, and and that's when I started getting really interested in saying, and started counting, and, and once I started counting and I realized there was over a million organizations, then uh, we got a grant from a really wonderful man to actually go in and, and, and do a typology, a taxonomy. Like, well, what are we talking about here? You know, environment, social justice, indigenous rights. Like, what does that mean, you know? And so we started really going through the list of organizations that we discovered and then looking at their mission statement and looking at their, who we are, you know, like descriptions, and then saying, okay, well, what category does that belong in? And so we name it. And for example, when we started doing that, we've started to counter groups about climate justice. At the time, it was nascent and not anymore. 
But at that time, it was like, wow, that's a, hadn't thought of that. So let's call it climate justice, or somebody else may have at that time. But we just kept naming, 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 you know. And when we got done, you know, there was over 2,000 different you know, types of organizations that were inextricably knitted together, you know, as this movement, although not necessarily all aware of that. And um, so from my point of view, since the, it was published in 2007, um, it continues to grow. The economic shock of uh, 08, 09, I think, created the need for uh, groups to work more closely together. You know, resources became more limited, but the need became more urgent. So, and I mean, if you look back, um, you know, to the 60s, and the flowering of movements and all that incredible diversity of, of movements there that sort of flowered in the mm-hmm. late 60s and then sort of tailed away quite steeply going into the 70s. It felt to me, I mean, I wasn't, I was born at sort of the end of it, the tail end of it, but looking back on it and reflecting on it, um, one of the key things seemed to be that, yes, there were lots of different groups, but actually there wasn't the kind of um, emotional maturity kind of, uh, grounding what they were doing in some kind of process and right. looking at groups and all that kind of stuff. So we have a big. So everyone just sort of fell out with each other and got too stoned and you know the yeah. whole thing didn't have that. Yeah. So do you have a sense that actually the movement that the movement that you documented in Blessed Unrest as we sit now is somehow learned from those mistakes? Is more mature than what happened in the sixties, or is there a danger that it repeats the same thing with lots of different groups who don't get on with each other and then sort of we're doing our thing, you're doing our thing? Gosh, you know, when you generalize, you have to be careful. First of all, it depends whether you're talking about India or England, are you talking about France, are you talking about the US, are you talking about New Jersey, are you talking about Arizona, yeah. I mean, or Japan. I mean, so it's it's different in every country. The the level of maturity and um, is different. Uh, I would say in the United States that is extraordinarily sophisticated now, and uh, uh, there's not a chance that the 60s will happen. The 60s wasn't that big, it's just that at that time, any activism was given uh, a lot of press. And it was novel, it was different, it got news, because it got news, it attracted followers or activists, and you know, it was kind of a symbiotic relationship. You don't really get that kind of attention now. So it's not that you don't have activist groups, you know, like uh, 350.org with Keystone XL is very, very active, and then there's lots of splinter groups that you know, spoke out of that. Um, but what you see now is much more boots on the ground and it's about let's get the work done and it's not about being active it's about being collaborative it's about listening it's about working with communities and place and towns and it's about really bringing diversity together instead of being right uh, and so uh, and and I just feel like <clears throat> from my own perspective that you know you're seeing, uh, you're still seeing growth in it, and but like any biological organism, you're seeing death too. You're seeing turnover. You know, mm-hmm. it's learning. It's a learning. Um, it's a movement of movements, and and um, there's no center. There's no head. There's no ideology. There's no you know, no one needs one or wants one, and no other is there one. And so therefore, um, you know, when you talk about, it, you have to be really careful. I have to be always very careful not to generalize. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was really interesting in your talk today was when you talked about Sokolow's wedges. Mm. And I've always shared the awkward sense that actually 
the, one of the dangers with those wedges is that they're all things that other people do or right. don't do on our behalf. And like you say, you, you lose agency with, yeah. with them. Um, and it always it sort of occurred to me for a while something like transition or actually the movement in blessed unrest you know has the potential to be that right. to be a wedge and I wonder if you could just talk about that for a little bit what, what that well mean? I think the the movement has a chance to be all, almost every wedge actually I mean every, well excuse me not the circular wedges but the wedges we spoke about today in terms of I think we have ninety two or one hundred and two um, you saw the scrolling list that's mm. not complete but um, and these are the real wedges. Even the wedge thing is so linear, mechanical, you know, pie shaped. And it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's like, oh. I mean, because things in the world always do that. Of course, only a PhD <laughs> could draw, do a drawing like that, you know. <laughs> it's like, um, but um, so, I mean, I think blessed unrest or the, the what it was trying to describe and didn't name, you know, because I don't think it has a name. Um, uh, is doing exactly that and inventing ways as we speak too and some may be considered marginal but marginal things add up and are significant and that's what the wedges didn't do you know it's like okay we brush off all that stuff these are the eight you know big headliners and the like I say that most of which is never going to happen I mean <laughs> it's like golden rice you know it's like 22 years and counting it's like and it's like the stocking horse for the GMO <laughs> companies, you know, are you going to let these kids go blind, you know, <laughs> and your foolish, you know, objection to, you know, GMOs. So you're seeing the same, to me, the same thing with those, which is like, okay, whatever, if you capture your coal, tell me about it. But in the meantime, we have to do things, and that's why I love transition towns and transition movement is because, like, let's do it. And, you know, what happens as you so beautifully explained and, and illustrated is that People know what to do. I mean, they just need the question, really, and, and to have the question, and they know what to do. And it's not a, like you or me or somebody saying, okay, I know what to do. It's like, oh, not at all. You know, it's like creating the conditions in which people rise up, and they want to rise up. They want meaning in their life. They want their life to be relevant. They want, you know, their children to grow up in some semblance of, you know, um, um, stability and, and, and economic security and and so the 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 movement to localize is just I mean it, it it's so important most of it concentrates on food and other things and and what Janine and I were, Janine and I do and what she was talking about with in her discussion with Bob Berkebiles we have been trying to make a, a solar panel so that you can have local energy. Local means you make it and recycle it right there. You don't go to China. You don't go to some big company in Germany. You know, you don't use exotic materials, you know, um, or you don't have cadmium coated glass, which you have on, you know, 15% of all solar panels right now. I mean, you have things that are safe and that, you know, children can go to the factory and breathe and, you know, don't cause fish to die like they do in China from solar companies. And, um, but it's local, you know, mm -hmm. so, so, you know, when you're local, when you have that kind of control of food and energy and, you know, and materials, you know, like for housing and, and, and you know, then that resilience and kind of allow and, and, and work as like, you know, sort of in a kind of a, what I would call a kind of ecological sovereignty with other, you know, um, 
cities, regions, villages, towns, whatever, you know, and now you have, now you have something really interesting, which is what, when Lewis and Clark, you know, got to the Pacific Northwest, you know, there was Native Americans there that had shelves in Patagonia. It's like, <laughs> okay, you know, like, so, you know, oh, okay, from there all the way down to, you know, Patagonia, obviously the people are doing business, you know, and that's why I say that commerce is sacred. Commerce is sacred, you know, we have to make sure that we understand commerce is actually beautiful. When you get, when you aggregate and scale and concentrate, you know, that's where you get into big problems. Mm-hmm. But when people are serving each other by their hands and their wit and their services and their craft, you know, it's really a very beautiful mm-hmm. thing. And that's what localization does. And, and uh, so we just wanted to create something that uh, uh, where nobody would benefit from centralizing it. Nobody can make it cheaper in some other country. Nobody can lord over you. <laughs> like nobody can lord over you with carrots. You know? yeah, exactly. Yeah. I invented those. I invented those. <laughs> and, and we can do them at yeah. one-tenth the price you can. No, you can't. It's a carrot. <laughs> and so we think solar should be that way. Now, solar now is not a great technology. One of the things, so Jeremy Leggett, you know Jeremy Leggett? Yes, I do, yeah. <laughs> he's, just, he's just published a book, and uh, and in the book he tells a story about when he met Tony Blair <clears throat> and discussed peak oil with Tony Blair. And Tony Blair said to him, um, uh, if it does happen, it's going to be horrible, and there's nothing you can do about it. If it doesn't happen, then everyone will say that you, you, were, you were alarmist, and they'll blame you, and they'll vote you out as well. Uh, so, um, so you'll scare people, and they and they won't vote for you as well. So, mm. so he says. So, so Tony Blair's thing was. So we just have to hope that the oil companies are right. <laughs> you know, can we on 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 issues like climate change, peak oil, these big defining issues? Can we expect any leadership from government? Do you think? No. And I think there's there's a there's a there's another thing we should throw in with peak oil, which is really, and I, yeah, I know you know this very well, but Iroy, which is energy return. In other mm. words, it's not just energy, there's, there's, there's kinds of energy, types of energy, and then there's, well, how much you're getting for the energy you're putting in to, in to retrieve that energy. And, you know, peak oil, who knows, you know, when that is because of, you know, you can frack the whole bloody planet, you know, but on Iroy, I mean, it's just dropping, 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 dropping. The tar sands are on a good day, two and a half to one. I doubt it, given the huge, huge ecological footprint damage that is done there. I just, I don't, I don't read it that way. But, but I'll give them two and a half to one. That's what they say. Well, I mean, hunting gathering societies are ten to one, and you know, <laughs> so. So let's see. You know, twenty five percent of a hunting gathering society. I mean, you know, it's it's. Civilization, surplus energy is the mother's milk of civilization. It created towns, it created religion and education and dance and music and opera and, and all the things that are not about survival but about celebration of, 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 of humanity. So surplus energy is a good thing. It's not, nothing wrong with that. But, but, but every, where the, the fossil fuel industry is taking us is, is, is right down a very, very... Putting aside carbon, putting aside CO2, putting aside combustion, putting aside pollution is the wrong way to go. Mm-hmm. You add that in and then it's just diabolical. So Tony Blair's comments are it's so interesting because there's such a lack of leadership in those comments. And and so, you know, 
whether you think of it as a precautionary principle or however you think about it, say, well, let's have a no regrets policy, which is if we do that, no matter how it turns out, we'll have no regrets whatsoever. So energy independence, reducing our footprint, cleaning up our energy metabolism so it's not poisoning us or others, you know, and with this pollution, uh, creating, you know, jobs that are, you know, endemic to the country or region rather than outside somewhere, getting rid of political corruption, which, you know, follows energy like, you know, flies follow <laughs> poop. I mean, I mean, you know, the, and as does war. And so when you take away those stakes, you take away that concentration of power, all those things are benefits from a no-regrets energy policy. And if you're wrong, your country is cleaner, stronger, more economically vibrant, more resilient. And if you're, if you're right, you, you know, then look what you've done for others. And so his answer to me is upside down, backwards. Mm. And, um, so the, and so if, if there's no relationship, I mean, so, so Blessed Unrest was about that bottom-up movement, what it looks like. Right. What do you see, as, and, and if, like you say, there's, there's no sign of any leadership coming from, from no. the top, what is there a way in which, how do those two things interact with each other? What does it look like when a, when a vibrant bottom-up yeah. Blessed unrest movement meets the top down. I think we're in a, yeah. I think we're in a state. You know, we're in a stage of devolution on the big centralized hierarchical institutions, and they're gonna. I think they're they're gonna collapse. I don't think governments are gonna collapse, or you know, I'm not I'm not apocalyptic that way at all. But I think the the thinking and the way it informs itself and conducts itself will collapse. In maybe 10, 15, 20 years, it's just, it's inevitable. And I think that what the, the civil society is doing is not trying to replace government or not trying to replace the church or the university or you know, like venerable institutions. I think what it's trying to do is permeate them with new ways of being and thinking and relating in the world. And government is so ripe for that because there's no reason now to have the government we have, which is by you know closed doors and you know good old boy and smarmy corruption and you know wink wink nudge nudge and you know I mean it's so outdated and in an age of the internet in the age of instant feedback in an age in which you know we can set up new means where people you know um, govern themselves and like you know the present last I talked about wisdom of the crowds but we you know really, you know, the ideal of democracy is really that, you know, the, the crowd, if it knows it has that power, you know, actually is very pre-considered. It's not, it doesn't vote its emotions, you know, it actually considers things. And then what happens in that kind of situation, then you have, if you have true democracy and you don't have corruption, then you have actually information flowing to people, which is, open and transparent and then from good information people make pretty good decisions they have bad information which they do now then the decisions get skewed so I don't see but I do see that there's gonna we're we're gonna see some we're gonna see um, the bankruptcy I guess you would say of the existing political systems you know become more and more evident like which is like just as wow that's really and um um, and I, and I, I think I go like Vaslav Havel. I think of him and 
you know, as playwright, for goodness sakes, and he and his colleagues were, you know, just kept practicing parliamentary democracy in, in Czechoslovakia, and under the nose of, you know, the Communist Party, and, <clears throat> and the, you know, the secret police were always trying to find where they're meeting and what they're doing, and, and they found them, and they throw them in jail, you know, and, and excoriate them, and humiliate them, and take away all their possessions, and then they'd get out, and they'd do it again. And when the Berlin Wall fall, uh, fell, then there's these people who had practiced, you know, they had practiced, they had rehearsed, you know. And I feel like when you look at this movement, you know, we're all rehearsing, we're all practicing. And what's going to happen, I believe, is that the larger world, if you will, the, the world that's asleep, the world that's numb, the world that is, still has faith in, you know, the inertia of the existing system, when that crumbles, cracks, you know, you know, then they're going to turn around and say, well, what is working? Mm. And and then you get this exponential change. So you got this sudden change in Czechoslovakia from, you know, fascism to democracy. And it was a very smooth transition because, you know, people felt oppressed by the old system, but they also had really great leadership. So really, people are practicing leadership in real time, but they will be the go-to organizations, the go-to people, the go-to spokesperson, and we'll have that kind of, you know, um, uh, really phase transition is what it's called, and you know, as you know, and um, where things change overnight, very quickly. Just and Rob, I don't know whether it's five or fifty or fifteen years. I don't know when it's going to happen, but it's all set up for that to happen. One of the things. This is the first time I've ever been uh, to America. And um, one of the things that's really struck me is the amount of flags you see everywhere in front of people's houses, everywhere there's, there's stars and stripes. Yeah. Um, how can a love of, uh, how can that degree of kind of, because you never see, I, that's, you rarely ever see that where I come from. I know, right? I know. And that whole idea when people say about things being un-American as being sort of yeah. somehow a bad thing. The worst thing Can you, can that sort of, degree of nationalism be squared with a love of the environment and the kind of care ethos that we need to move forward or is that really something that that kind of flag grasping something that really keeps us in the past you think? well that that thing of patriotism is the last refuge of scandals you know I mean so when you see people sort of rigidly holding on to symbols which is just a symbol and um, then you're looking at people who are really frightened and they're they're um, frightened of the rapidity of change in, in the world. It's not their ally, it's their enemy, it's a threat. So the people that represent it are threat, and you know, gay marriage is a threat, and this is a threat, that's a threat, this one. And so they grab onto this, you know. And then there's the demagogues and those people who will use that so totemic symbol, you know, as a means to insert, you know, fear, to use fear as a way to mobilize. And that's what you're seeing in America. And uh, as uh, uh, what was a great British filmmaker, Adam Curtis, talked about you know, the power of nightmare. Mm. And um, so it's it's taking grip. It's very powerful here. You know, what I was meant to say today, you know, so we can imagine the end of the world very easily. Now we're all getting really good at it, and the end of civilization. And what's unimaginable is the transformation of the world. Mm. And and so we have to really work on that, which is to work on 
the other part of that. So what you're seeing in America is really, again, I, I, I say more of a sunset effect. It can also be a prelude to fascism, of course. I mean, you know, when fascism was born really in, in Germany, um, you know, of uh, Versailles, you know, I mean, <laughs> that treaty was humiliating and <clears throat> and so it just was a breeding ground for demagoguery and too bad that Adolphus, what his name was, you know, went to the Wagner opera and, you know, and thought he was going to be a hero, I mean, you know, and save his people. But, um, so, you know, I'm not saying America will be this way or that way. It was Churchill who said Americans do the right thing after they've tried everything else, and they they really do try everything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, it looks almost ludicrous even to ourselves, you know, much less from outside the country. But, but there is a deep core of goodness in America, mm -hmm. which is being, I think, misdirected and and exploited, you know, and by media, by the person outside the country, who's Rupert Murdoch, he's not even American, but, but um, <clears throat> uh, and I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I do think that um, on the, the, the reason the cities in the United States are so effective in the, in the governors, senators, and and the president are so ineffective is that that's a level of sovereignty where our differences um, are the things that unite us are much more important than our differences and that's true on any scale even in a city as big as New York and um, so that's where you find mayors who you know signed the Kyoto Protocol met it and surpassed it and are just moving very rapidly to making their cities the greenest city in the world I can't tell you how many cities I go to where the mayor says, we're going to be the most eager. <laughs> you know, it's like a mayor saying, go, great, go, go, go. <laughs> what a great competition. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, I, and more and more now, you get elected as mayor, if you don't have a program, I mean, you're just almost unelectable, if not a, a, mm -hmm. a joke. And so, you know, it's there where the you, you see the patriotism and it can come together in a way because people can feel like the values then of children and education and safety and security and autonomy and, and resilience, you know, start to all blend together in kind of a, you know, a gestalt that, that, that makes sense to those who, mm. you know, fought the war and, you know, have medals and, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, that don't make any sense to a generation who just, Thought those wars were crazy, and um, well, we'll see. You know, I, I, I sometimes I actually think we could just veer into fascism. You know, mm. I do. I really do. So my last question was: We just passed four hundred parts per million a few months ago. Yeah. And the IPCC report just came out, which was hardly a, a clean bill of health uh, in terms of the climate. Yeah. You know, your what's your what's your sense of? Um, you know, this, the movement that Blessed Unrest um, captures, is it going to be enough to to turn things around, do you think? Well, it's it's only good enough to turn around if it doesn't become it, you know. I mean, it, the whole purpose of any movement is is for to become we, in the largest sense of the word. 
not, so there's no they there. So I think that, you know, the question we have to ask ourselves is climate change happening to us or for us? To what, sorry? Is it happening to us okay. or for us? Because yeah. if it's happening to us, then we're victims and we've been screwed. We've got a short end of the stick. And when it's happening to you, then you think, oh my God, who did that? And, and I'm other and how did I get the, you know. If it's happening for us, which I believe, by the way, then it means everything's wide open. Everything has to change. And our hearts, our minds, what we do, what we think of as patriotic, for example. Um, how, do you, how do you mean for us? For means on our behalf. We are doing this. We, in the biggest sense, are doing this. We have done this, okay? And it's for us to... We, we've created a situation, this not a shadow, okay, of our uh, catabolic thermal industrial economy in order to wake up. So, because if we don't wake up, then it's foreordained, you know, roughly what will happen. Uh, and rough is, and it's very rough, that roughly. But, but for us means that, you know, it's like one by one by one people are waking up. And it's not like one by one by one people are going to sleep. It's the other way around. Mm. And you can easily say, well, yeah, but, you know, this idea that we're, we're losing, you know. No, we're not. I really radically disagree with that. We have to really be careful not to conflate the momentum, the inertia, the concentration of capital and the corruption attendant thereon. Uh, of large-scale fossil fuel companies and institutions that are allied with them uh, uh, or kin to them, which are benefiting from and expressing momentum that goes back 50, 100, 150 years in industrialism. And with the mindset and economic you know, um, uh, principles that are not principles or economic, and, and, the, and the momentum of that, we don't want to conflate that with this birth of uh, a transformative humanity that takes shape in terms of groups and NGOs and collectives and, 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 and co-ops in so many different ways to, um, to address the salient issues of our time. And so people say, like, well, you, you know, the, the momentum is exceeding the effort to uh, halt it the damage, they said, therefore you're failing. I said, no, 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 no. Because that momentum has nothing to do with growth. This has started small, and it's growing, and it's growing much faster, by the way, than anything else. But it started small because it started in response. And it's a, you could say, well, there's lag time and delay. Sure, you can say whatever you want. But it's in response. So you can't complete the response to the thing, the instigation that caused the response. So I don't buy into this idea that somehow we're losing. Are we losing our ocean? Are we losing <laughs> climate stability? Are we losing diversity, elephants? I mean, yes, 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 yes. There's no question. I, the data is robust. There's no question about that. I'm not saying that. But when we conflate it all together, then we just go dark and we go despair and we go numb and we go feel like, oh my God, you know, like, you know, we lose our narrative. Hmm. 
we lose a story that's meaningful to us. And um, there's a great book by uh, Jeremy Lear about uh, the Crow people and you know, ethics in the face of cultural devastation and, and, and what happens when the narratives that informed the culture and, and made you, not made you, but, but gave meaning to everything in your life, you know, are taken out from underneath you. So, you know, if you buy into that it's to us and you're the victim, then you're also giving your narrative over to that which is dying. It may be big, but that doesn't mean it's thriving. Mm-hmm. It may have all the more and more money in the world. It may be the income is getting more concentrated, but that is a sign of death. That's not a sign of life, you know. And so it's really important that we don't do that, that we understand that, that there is a deeper story that is being enacted out and being written by you and by so many people. I know you know it. You're there. You're in the towns. You listen. You watch. You see. Um, now you've been here and you see what it's like here. And you know, you know. of course, people are marginalized economically. They've chosen that. They know they could do better, make more of this if they gave up. They can't give up. They see. And once you see, you can't unsee. And they've chosen a path of regeneration. And, and what I have learned, you know, when I was talking about my youth today, and I spent a lot of time outside because I didn't trust the adult world. I didn't trust it at all. And, um, and what I learned young, and I didn't have the words for it, but no matter what you do to nature, you burn it, scorch it, scrape it, you know, clear cut it, extract it, poison it, the moment you stop, the life regen starts to regenerate. There's nothing you can do about it. It's the default mode of life. And we're life. We really are. And that's our default mode. And so it's really important that we see that and that it's happening, that movement to regenerate. Um, with all our ignorance and like, you know, wake, like we've woken up and what happened and got to do something and let's put my clothes on and go out you know I mean definitely people are startled by the a newfound literacy of where we are because they've been lulled to sleep by you know things and advertising and TV and all that sort of stuff but one by one people pass over and they wake up and that awakening is the for us that is what this is here for none of us will be the same person we are today when we make this transition